17 to 19. It can be found on page 544 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock. You who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth between Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, you have woven the threads of creation too finely together for any of us to exist as islands unto ourselves. Teach us to delight in your web of life and to know ourselves in community. Amen. Um, pick any day of the week, probably any time of the week, um, and you'll see it. People walking to and fro from work or appointments or coffee or whatever, um, and you see them walking in droves, and they have ear pods in their ears or, or air pods, the ones without the, without the cords. They have Beats headphones over there covering their whole ears, or maybe some of the third-party thing they pulled from Target or, or Walmart or whatever. But regardless of, of whatever they're using to listen to music, they're listening to music. And more specifically, it's always their music. I'm listening to my music. Or go to any high school, pick any high school in, in Sacramento, um, and you'll see the, almost the exact same thing. Hundreds of adolescents and young people listening to their music. Um, but they're especially skilled at, at listening to their music because they can do this thing that I cannot understand. They can have one ear pod, one, one piece in their ear and still be with their friends and have conversations. They can, this is a skill that they have. They can listen to music and they can talk to their friends. Um, but music is intensely personal, right? That's why we call it our music. We think we own our music. And it's one of the core things that we care about. And it's often one of those things that, that strikes a blow and splits and divides a church. I don't like how the music has changed, right? It happens all over the place. Um, and, and it's clear, based on the question of the week last week, that you care about your music too. Um, the question was, what, uh, what line is from your favorite song? What favorite line is from your song? And there were a variety of responses that, that showed up. Um, some pointed out some Jesus songs, some worship songs, some really great stuff. Um, some pointed out some, some hip-hop. Um, I don't know these people. I looked them up, and I, even when I saw their faces, I don't know who they are. Um, rapper Nick Crompton. Someone identified their favorite song, their favorite line from a song called um, England is My City. No idea. Uh, Jake Paul, still no idea. Um, it's Everyday, Everyday Bro with the Disneyland, with the Disney Channel flow. I don't know him, but um, I'm, 
I, I think that that was a joke, so I'm looking at Elijah Holland. Maybe that was, maybe that was him. There is some rock and roll, um, some classic rock, some punk, and whatever Jason Mraz is. Um, someone identified Steve Miller Band. Um, uh, some people call me Space Cowboy. Pink Floyd, I like that Pink Floyd was brought up. We're just two souls swimming in a fishbowl year after year, running over the same old ground. Well, we have found the same old fears. Wish you were here. Someone uh, pointed out the Smiths. I like this one a lot. I know I'm lovable. You don't have to tell me. I don't have much in life, but take it, it's yours. How often do, um, do we feel that? Someone pointed out Paul Simon, um, and then they added a little note, which I, I like the note a lot. They identified this as their favorite song lyric. My life's so common, it disappears, and sometimes even music can't substitute for tears. The note that they added was, I don't necessarily feel that way often, but if I could write one like that, I think that I would be satisfied, which I think I have to invoke Lin-Manuel Miranda, that you'll never be satisfied. And then there's Jason Mraz, whatever, whatever genre, you know, genre we can fit him, him in. Hold your own, know your name, go your own way. It's interesting that those, those are some of your favorite music responses, and they share more about, about you um, and the music that you like and that you listen to. And it's a little intimidating to look at those responses because Mark usually gets one or two, maybe three responses, but this was prime preaching fodder. I mean, it's just good stuff that, that came out of here. And it reminded me of my favorite songs, what I cared about. And almost immediately I was brought back to... To, to music I listened to in high school and college and after high school, um, when those songs, those lyrics, rhythms, refrains, melodies, hooks, feedback, layers of instruments that came back to um, and reminded me of the story of my own soundtrack or the soundtrack of my own story. And music does that. Because long as humanity has wanted to tell our story, it's been accompanied by, by song. And it makes sense because music stirs us. It captures us. It wells up that, that emotion for us to feel something, and, and maybe because we haven't felt something in a while. And it's also really big business, too. It's multi-billion dollar business, and it's, it's changing, um, but we have access now to not just a few songs or a few songs we claim as our own, but we have access to all the songs, all the songs. For $10 a month, you can access as many songs as you want. And I can't help but think, when was the moment that music changed forever in my lifetime? And it reminded me of, uh, I think it was 2001, Steve Jobs' announcement of the first iPod. He touted the, the features and the, ca the capability of the iPod. And he makes this, this really great, um, uh, uh, almost prophetic understanding of what music is and the access of, of, of how, we can, how we, he can use it. He says that music's a part of everyone's life, everyone. Music's been around forever. It's always been around. And this is not a speculative market. And, and because it's a part of everyone's life, it's a very large market all around the world. It knows no boundaries. Before he unveiled the iPod, he, he cast the landscape of what music looked like in 2001. Um, the slow death of vinyl, which it's making a comeback because of the hipsters. Um, the Walkman, which is making a less comeback, but still a little bit because of the hipsters. CD players, remember those? You couldn't walk very fast because they would skip. The struggles of, 
having CD of having CD cases, right? The multiple pages of CDs, sometimes four CDs to a page. Road trips were the worst because you wanted to have all the music with you, but it was you needed a backpack for your CD your CD cases. The plethora of choices for MP3 players, well, all with their different chords and, and ways to put music on there, it was really hard. And then he unveiled this new wonder. This, this change that, that overturned the music industry, this tiny device that would eventually be a part of everyone's lives. And he ended this announcement with this. So this little, this amazing little device holds 1,000 songs and it goes right into my pocket. How the world has changed in 16 years. Think about those people that, that buzz around the city. They go from place to place, in, in the city or on campuses, in their cars or on foot, listening to their music. And there's a variety of reasons why we listen. It's meaningful, it's personal, it's communal, it's lasting. It brings back a cacophony of sounds connected with experiences and memories. Music brings, back, brings us back to the moments that we remember. Whether it's those moments that we try to forget or we relish with joy. And it does both, doesn't it? It really does do both. It stirs those important moments as if it's a, a, a Proustian memory or an involuntary memory that forces you to stop in the midst of what you are doing and it throws you back. There are songs that matter to me, like uh, the song I listened to the day I got my driver's license and I drove by myself for the first time. The music was too loud and I drove too fast. Um, or when my friends and I in high school, we would go to, uh, to see hardcore bands and we would blast the music of the bands that we were going to see. Again, it was too loud and too fast. Or I remember that, that summer I drove down I-5 um, listening to the very first Mumford & Sons songs album. Um, again, driving, the music was too loud and I drove too fast. I don't know what music recalls that past for you. And I don't know what that looks like for you. But know that this is a safe place to explore those moments. It's a safe place to explore those things that matter to you, those, those memories that are brought up. And this is a safe place to enter inside of that story, to stop in the middle of the present, and to reflect. But look at this song. It's clear that this is a, a song that's punctuated by the refrain. The repetition jumps out like a chorus, separating the main ideas. The Psalter writes, Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. Now, this is a, a corporate song sung by people, by a, by a large community, by Israel, by a congregation. And it appeals to God to, to save them, to restore them. And the repetition goes further than just the refrain. Look at all of those words that are similar to that. Hear us, save us, restore us, revive us, shine your face on us. A plea for God to save his people, his congregation. The beginning of this psalm petitions God to hear his people. The poet invokes God's vocation and job. God is like a shepherd who must protect his flock, a king who must save his people. That's his job. But here, the flock is talking back. The sheep are saying, hear us, listen to what we are saying. The sheep are talking back to the, to the shepherd. You're supposed to take care of us. You promised that. You sit at the center of the tabernacle, the center of the temple. 
the very center of our beliefs, and it's as if you're not even there. Are you going to show up or what? And there's a sense of loneliness in this song that searches for that answer, for God to show up. One theologian writes that the entire Bible can be summarized in two words, exile and restoration. Exile and restoration. From the very beginning of, of this book, it's, it, it begins with exile. Adam and Eve are, are cast out from the garden. They're exiled. Um, Cain, after murdering his brother, is exiled to roam uh, the wilderness. The Israelites walk in the desert aimlessly, exiled, because they don't believe what God is able to do. But even the, in the midst of that exile, there's a constant, a melody that is under all of it, a need and a push for reconciliation, exile and reconciliation. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, but God sacrifices his own creation to clothes, to put clothes on the backs of, of his people. Cain is cursed, but, but not before. God says, listen to the blood of your brother. Have empathy for what? for, for the, the harm that you cause other people. And even when the Israelites are cast out of the desert, he provides for them, always guiding them to that promised land, exile and reconciliation. And I, I, I can imagine that after Jerusalem gets sacked, after the temple is destroyed, and the Israelites are forced out of this land that God had promised them, they're singing this song. God, you promised. And here we are again. What are you going to do? It doesn't seem right. It, it doesn't seem fair. It seems like it's a far cry from justice. But throughout this psalm, there's appeals that revolve around this, this idea. Something has driven a wedge between God and his people. And the people, the community, humanity feels the effects of that separation. And the petition and, and the plea is for God to reconcile them. Verse 4 through 6, that, that emotional appeal is, is turned up to 11 and crescendos in verse 6. The Psalter that um, writes that God has made his people an object of derision, of contention to the world around them. And the argument is, is really, really simple. It goes like this. One, you made certain promises to us. Two, you are not keeping those promises. Three, what is worse is that you told us to keep those promises. Four, and when we try to do so, we're mocked. We're ridiculed by our neighbors and our enemies. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. This object of, of, of derision, this, this object of contention, is a rhetorical device used kind of often in, in the Old Testament in prophetic texts, in, in poetic texts. And that's kind of getting into like kind of the, the nerd region of, of reading the Bible. Um, but it's this common device that's, that's used where it, um, there's something going on with God's people, and so they use this hyperbolic phrase to get God's attention. Is this to say, hey, look over here. Look at what's happening to us. This is, what, this is what is happening to us. It centers on that experience of suffering for God's people, and it's this bra a brazen appeal for God to turn his focus to them. And it's saying, of all the things that you told us to do, all that stuff that goes into the parts that we skip when we read the Bible, Numbers and Deuteronomy, out of all of that stuff, 
that's supposed to make life meaningful and worth living, that's supposed to make it really good and really awesome, this is the source of our mockery. This is the source of our contention. And it just doesn't seem fair. And it reminds me of, of a song that came out really recently. Look at what you made me do, sings Taylor Swift. Look at what you made me do. Of all the things that are supposed to be good, those things are ruining my life. Look at what you made me do. And what's worse, look at the image that the poet uses. He says that, um, that our enemies are drinking our tears. Our enemies are drinking our tears. As if all of the pain and the sadness that is happening, they're taking delight in this sadness, delight in our suffering. And if that doesn't speak, if that doesn't cut straight through our, our contemporary conversation right now, taking delight in the failings of others, I don't know what does. You tell us to do something and we try to do it and we become a source of mockery for our enemies. They drink our tears. This intimate relationship between God and his people, something has turned them away. And it, it's ironic, right? Even in the midst of that, they hope for justice, for something worthwhile to happen. And we do that. You do that. We wait for justice. We wait for justice to unveil itself, for something to be brought back to rights. Our, our brains are racked and wrecked trying to make sense of it. And we write songs to describe that feeling. Like, like U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday, I love this song. This song, um, U2, is, is a song that, that my sister and I, um, we celebrate together because we, we love that band together. I can't believe the news today. Oh, I can't close my eyes just to make it go away. Or what about John Lennon's song? Everybody's talking about revolution, evolution, mastication, flagellation, regulations, integrations, meditations, United Nations, congratulations. All we're saying is just give peace a chance. And we wait for justice to happen. We wait for that, inve that investigation to bring vindication. We wait for a day when um, the news finally doesn't have the latest report of, of sexual assault. We wait for financial re relief to actually happen for those that, that need it. Or for warmth for those that sleep outside during winter. For freedom for those that are enslaved to, to bad loans, bad choices, and bad people. We hope for justice, that one day the world will not be ruled by the powerful and the unscrupulous. And there's always a choice, right? That the world will end in triumph and vindication. A knight will ride in to set the wrongs. 2020 will be our year, finally. Or we ride our cynicism until the very end, and it fades like T.S. Eliot writes in his poem, Hollow Men. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. And maybe you're like me. And in the midst of all of those things and what God has promised, doubt pervades all of it. And we can, maybe we can invoke Taylor Swift again. Look at what you made me do. You made me hope for something. And you tarry for so long, what's gonna happen? So we sing songs to help us cope. And we even think we are so vain to think that this psalm is probably about us. <laughs> 
But my, my friends, with every exile is a reconciliation. That's our hope, right? With every exile is a reconciliation. On the other side of, of that, uh, that rhetorical device, the object of derision, of contention, is another one. Um, go back to the refrain. In the midst of those songs, in the center of that suffering, the Psalter repeats the same phrase. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. And that second line is so loud and is so clear. In the midst of all of that suffering, those things that we wait for, those things that we hope for, the brokenness, the injustice, is a request for God to show up, for him to be there, for him to make sense out of all the things that don't make sense. And there's this beautiful illusion that shows up there. It reaches all the way back to the story of, of, of Moses and God, where God, um, uh, Moses asked God to see his face. And God says, no, you, you can't see my face. Anyone that sees my face, they're going to die. And so, Mo, and so Moses persists and said, I, I have to tell some, something to these people because they're waiting for something. Um, and God says, no, you can't. And Moses continued to petitions. And God says, okay, fine, fine. I'll, I can't show you my face because you'll die. You don't want to die. Um, but I'll do the best that I can. I'll push you into the cleft of a rock and I'll cover your eyes. I'll walk past you and unveil your eyes. So he does it. God pushes Moses into a crack in, in a rock. God pushes Moses into a crack? We'll go with it. And he walks past and unveils Moses' eyes. And the best that Moses can do is to see where God has been and what he has done. And it goes even further than that. Anytime that Moses sees God's face, he comes back and his face is, is shining, is, is glowing. And the Israelites get so afraid that they tell him, you got to wear a bag over your head because it's kind of freaking us out. He, when, God, when Moses sees God, his face shines bright like a diamond. <laughs> see what I did there? I'm here all day. Um, and the, 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 the best part that, that encapsulates this, that really captures this idea of this face of asking God to shine his face on us is the description in the Old Testament when Moses meets God. It's as if when Moses meets God, it's as if a man is talking to his friend. This brilliant intimacy when we ask God to show up. Furthermore, the, the, the best way to read this is not necessarily to see it as kind of the shining, that's, that's true, that's good, but, but the best way to see it is, is to really understand the connotation of this as smiling. And so we can read it as, make your face smile on us. Make your face smile on us. Ask God not just to restore us, but to smile at us. To be as a person talks to a friend. And it's, it's a theological truth that God loves us. He is, he is the embodiment of that love. That is a true statement. But there's something different than simply just saying that God loves us, that he wants to be there. He wants to hear us, restore us, save us. But God is fond of you. He loves you, but he's fond of you. He wants to smile at you. And in spite of all of that suffering, to, to, to be fond of you, to smile at you. And I wonder how much of our sense of justice, this unfairness, revolves around this impersonal, abstract idea of just kind of putting it all together. And I wonder if we can make it, we can redirect it um, towards something 
beyond what, what you want or need, beyond what I want or need, into something that is already happening. And the tension shows up in, in 17. The, the resolution to, to this song shows up right after that refrain. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. The son of man you have raised up for yourself. Here it is, my friends, the moment of Advent, the reconciliation to the exile. And of course, it never meets our expectations, right? It's never going to be that, that king that's going to come over the, over the mountain um, that's going to save the day or, or Gandalf that rides over that, that hill in Helm's Deep. It's, it's never going to be that thing. It's never going to be, if we just get this one candidate, it will solve all of our problems. And it's never going to be, be that, that, that whimper at the end of time, that puff of smoke that goes away. No, instead, the moment of reconciliation is a baby crying in a feeding trough down a back road in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> He's my son. It might as well be, be Bakersfield or, or Ripon, right? Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere, this comes. And this is, the, this is the beginning of Advent. Today is the beginning of Advent. This is a, a moment, once a year, this, this time where we can stop and we can reflect. And we sing those songs that we sing really only once a year, and we can remember. What is the relationship between asking God to smile on us and being surprised by his sense of justice? It's that baby. Most importantly, it's not us. It is emphatically not us. That final moment um, shows us that it's, it's not us. And we still think it's about us. Even in the midst of that, we still think it's about us. Because there's right, right after this, in, in, in verse 18, that, that final moment, it, it perfectly summarizes this psalm in, in its entirety. When all these things happen, even in the midst of the suffering, when God shows up, when we least expect it, in the ways that we least expect it, um, then we will change, as if it's up to us, right? This conditional statement um, that when you do this, then, then I'll finally be at that point where I can change, right? How often do we, and we see kind of the, the, the brilliance of these, these moments and glimpses of God showing up, and we still think, well, when you do that, then I'll finally do it, right? When I get to that point, I'll finally, I'll finally do it. There's a, a, a poet, um, John Donne, a 17th century poet, that, that his entire work reflects really on that idea. When I look at you, God, and, and he writes in one of his poems, I'm ashamed of all the things that I have done, the, the doubts and the fear and the shame that I have. And I, I, I turn away from you, but I know that you are turning me back towards you. Turn me so I can see you. But when I see you, I know that I can't do it, but I want to do it, but I just can't do it. At the center of this, this is a paradox, but it's still not about us, as if this is up to us. I'm a fickle person. I think that my story is important and that it's about me. I desperately try to do the right thing. But, but I wonder how often my, my sense of duty and, and my search for that is really just a sense of compulsion. And I wonder how often my, my need for justice or my need for truth or, or my need for beauty or spirituality is, it distorts to become 
uh, a mechanical re religion only to be used to trap myself, or, or worse, to trap other people in my sense of, of fear and, and shame. Yearly, weekly, daily, um, it seems that I, that I have to be reminded that the universe does not revolve around me. I am not the center of it. That this, this season, this moment of Advent does not revolve around me. And that the music that I listen to, what is being pulled back together, is not about me. It's just not my song. That final moment in, in verse 18 suggests this last thing, and I'll finish with this. This last bit of hope. We call on your name. We will call on your name. If you, if you look at this, there's other connotations of, of this name. Um, and if we translate this, we get other things. We get fame. We get glory. We get reputa uh, reputation. All of these things have nothing to do with what I am able to do. It has nothing to do with what you are able to do. And finally, when all of this happens, what's going to be the thing that resolves this injustice, this tension? Relying on the reputation of God. That God has done something in the past and he will do something in the future. This song is not about me. Instead, it's about this baby crying in the darkness. God becoming something innocent. Pulling the world back together again. Putting it back to rights. Usually, every service, we end with a, a, a benediction. A, a prayer of well-being, of well of well-placing, where you, you go off and you embody that, that benediction. The classic benediction comes from Numbers, that place of, of Deuteronomy, or the, that place of, um, of those, those rules, those laws that God gave to his people that make them sources of contention. Um, we end with a, with a benediction, but I want us to begin Advent with a benediction. This one comes from that place that makes God's people an object of derision and contention. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his spirit to shine on you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his smile on you and give you peace. Pray with me. Lord, we do not always rush to do your will. Often we tiptoe our way into obedience, dragging old habits and mindsets with us. Help us to delight in your voice and to trust that calling is always good news. Amen.